0: Let's pray together. Jesus, we just thank you, um, Holy Spirit, for meeting us in this place today. We thank you, uh, as we just prayed a few moments ago, for these young lives and the th- all that they're learning, the ways that you're growing them and stretching them. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the kingdom work that you want to do through them. Lord, I thank you for Miss Libby. I thank you for the volunteers that are pouring into our kids right now. Um, Lord, we're so grateful for the, the way that you, from generation to generation, prove yourself faithful. And Lord, even this morning as we come into this place, waking up to the news of violence and of hate, Jesus, you're, you invite us as your church to usher in your kingdom to be about your kingdom, which is defined by peace, it's divine by community and love. Jesus, build your kingdom in our broken world. Use us as your church. Please use us to bring about peace. And We ask these things in your name. Amen. Um, I don't know if you have a friend like this, um, but they're kind of like a hype man, I would call them, sort of thing. So it's like if they ever go to a restaurant or see a movie or something like that, they're their review of it, I was always like, this is the best movie I've ever seen. Like, this is the greatest movie. You gotta go try this restaurant. It's fantastic, right? Like, and I kind of hate sort of having too many people build something up in my head. Because oftentimes then it's like, if everybody tells you this is the greatest movie you've ever seen like it's inevitably going to be a disappointment when you go to see the movie cuz you're like man that was that was a really good movie i don't was it the greatest movie that i've ever seen probably not you know or the same with like a restaurant and so you have this this disconnect between your expectation what you've been told what what your idea of what things should look like and then the reality of it i think oftentimes as christians we we feel that in, in our broken world. We're so informed by hope and by this vision of God's kingdom, and yet we look around us and today is no different and we see brokenness and pain and suffering. And the same can be true for us as we think about our own experiences with Jesus. I, I wonder sometimes if we read things like Romans chapter 8 and, and really numerous other new testament passage in their description of this victorious life in christ this this life where we have been declared out from underneath of condemnation where where we're told that we have been set free from the law of sin and death that we've been given this whole new mindset remember this this whole new motivational sinner so that the mindset of the flesh no longer has authority over us We've been told that we have the mindset of the Spirit, which is leading us towards life and peace. Not only that, we we have this picture of the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit, God himself, living inside of us. So the same person who had the power to raise Jesus from the dead is using that power to produce in us the character of Christ. Paul's description of this our status in in Jesus is compelling and it's inspiring And and we've talked about this at times it feels to us like this has to be too good to be true like it's this is fantastic news but sometimes I feel like the mindset of the flesh is still still got a pretty strong grip on me like, the, the influence of the flesh, not only, if I'm being honest with you, not only does it feel present with me, there's many times where it feels like it's winning in me. So I feel more like this convoluted work in progress than I do this new creation that Paul has described where the old is gone and, and the new has come. Do you ever feel this way? I think most of us, if, if we're honest with ourselves, relate to this struggle in various ways and in various degrees at various times, which I think is why Paul continues to so passionately lay out for us this description of the life in the spirit. I think this is why this is so important. And Paul's not done. He's not done describing or talking about the benefits or the privileges of being in Christ. He's not done talking about the work that the Holy Spirit is, is unfolding in us. This is why Paul writes this. He wants the church to understand. He wants us to live in view of what is true about us. And so we're going to continue to look at, at these benefits or these ramifications, of you will, uh, if you will, of life in the Spirit that Paul describes. This is uh, Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If if you're new with us this morning, we've been been studying this this chapter. This series is called The Greatest Chapter, and we've been looking at this soaring description that Paul gives us of of the life in Christ, and we're, we're in verse 12 now. I'm going to pick it up there. Paul writes to the church, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. So Paul, again, he's made no sort of like bones about where this leads, like this life in the flesh. He said this over and over and over again. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. Now that's, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but this, that phrase there is significant. And if you're a woman here, you may feel like that's exclusionary, but actually what Paul's doing is he's writing to the whole scale of the body of Christ in a first century world when all the rights and privileges were passed down through the sons. He's actually saying, you brothers and sisters, you are included in this. Men and women, like similar to like when maybe like a guy's reaction to when uh, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ and you're kind of like, Okay, you know, like this, I want you to understand that you're, he's saying that this is kind of why this is so radical. Verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul continues to help the church. He wants us to understand what does life in the spirit mean? What does it look like? And here Paul's going to describe it. He's going to say life in the spirit gives us a new obligation. It gives us a new identity and it gives us a new inheritance. Let's start by, by looking at this new obligation my wife and I, we've we, um, we sort of settled into kind of various roles in our house. Um, you probably function some, somewhat of the same way. I sort of am responsible for most of the exterior of the home, like mowing the yard and doing all that sort of stuff. She manages and does most of the stuff on in the interior. She does most of the cooking, but if it's grilling, I do the grilling. And but there's a lot of overlap. Like if I'm gone, she takes care of the outside. If she's gone, I take care of the inside. There's, there's not these hard and fast rules that we live by. It's just sort of what works for us. But there is one role that is exclusive to me. And that is killer of spiders. <laughs> like my, my wife, my daughters, like they hate them. And like with like passionately so. Right? Like they're, they're terrified of them. They don't want them in the house. And so if there's ever a spider that's found in the house, then, then it's my, that's where I like, that's my time to shine. Right? But there, there's, there's no sort of like uh, mixed messages to be sent when there's a spider in the house. Right? There's only one possible thing. And it is the total obliteration of the said spider. And sometimes, like, my wife or my daughters will ask to see, like, the results of this. Like, they want to know that that spider is dead. And not only is he dead, but he died in such a way to kind of send a message to his friends. Like, don't, don't, you're not welcome here, right? Like, see, I want, I want us to hear this because this is, Paul, this is Paul's prescription with regards to our approach to sin. And I don't know that I've always gotten this. It says, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. The Greek word there that's translated as put to death, is, it's a severe word. Like It, it has connotations of violence and, and destruction. It means, it, um, it means a ruthless, full-hearted resistance to sinful practice. It means to totally reject everything that we know to be wrong, to declare war on attitudes and behaviors that are wrong, to give them no quarter, to take no prisoners, to to pull out all the stops. Keller wrote that. But this this is Paul's explanation of our new obligation, and it's significant. Because we were previously, we were obligated to the flesh, Paul writes. Look again at verses seven and eight. Paul says the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law. In fact, it's it's in, uh, unable to do so. In the flesh, he writes, "We we can't please God. It's we're operating under this obligation. We are obligated to to submit to to fall under the authority of the flesh." And Paul says, "No longer." That's not your obligation. That is that is not who is authoritative in your life. Verse 12, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Paul says, put it to death. Obliterate it. Put to death the deeds of the body. So here's here's what I'm getting at here. Oftentimes, my own sort of um, approach to sin is, is I... I want to I get rid of it, but like conveniently so, right? So it's like, I want to keep it kind of hovering out here at, at, a, at a safe distance. And yes, I don't want to access it, but I kind of know it's there if I'm having a bad day kind of thing, or if I'm in a weak moment, or if I just want to, right? Paul says that's, that's, not, that's not the approach. Like Jesus, when he talks about sin, right? He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Like it's this the severity, it's the obliteration. I got to get it out of here. I'm going to get it away from me. It's that ruthless, full-hearted resistance to sinful practice. There's two things I want to just, I want to highlight real quickly here in this. First, I want to take a moment to think about the who, because Paul's instructions here in Romans 8 is, is regarding my sin. It's my response to my sin, my approach to my sin. So any license that I feel in the midst of this to obliterate the sin that is out there is, is that's misplaced, right? That's not to say that we're not engaged in the world. It's not to say we don't advocate for justice. We add, The scripture is clear on all of these points but what paul is addressing here is sin's authority in my own life and in me and so i I want us to be careful here because sometimes we can live this this idea of this obligation to the flesh and we see it out there and it creates this kind of us versus them mentality and jesus is saying that's the people outside of a relationship with jesus aren't your enemy and the issue is not addressing their sin; it's addressing ours. Paul gives us all sorts of instructions about how we are to approach people in the world, and it's defined by compassion and love and humility, and not animosity or aggression. So we can we can inadvertently, even in, a, in even coming from a, a, a appropriate place of passion, we can inadvertently misapply Paul's instructions here. But I think the second question, and this is the one I really just was sort of grappling with this week, is the how. How, does, how do we do this? And this really, I think, is the question that for so many of us we ask. Right, is, so is this just a matter of trying harder? Is this just a matter of feeling more guilt when we fail? No. In fact, Paul roots this call to put to death the deeds of the body Not not really in you, but rather what has been done for you. In other words, what Paul's argument here, his line of thinking is apply the gospel to yourself. When I was a kid learning to water ski, and if if any of you have done this, what's the first instruction that they tell you? Let, Let the boat pull you out of the water right the the number one mistake that you make when you're learning to water ski is you start to feel the tug of the boat and you're like you pull yourself out and e- inevitably you face plant and i speak from experience on this right like so the instruction is don't don't you do it let the boat do it now obviously you are engaged in this there's a, there's you're you're active in this but paul's making a similar argument he says Look at verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we're not obligated to the flesh. What is so, so then connecting it to? It's connecting this new obligation to exactly what, what preceded it, what Paul just said in, in verses 10 and 11. Hear this. He says in verse 10, Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ's Righteousness. It's been applied to us. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. In other words, right, so then because of this, brothers and sisters, we're not obligated to the flesh. This new obligation comes when we remember what Christ has done and what he will do for us. Once again, I'm going to quote Timothy Keller here because I couldn't think of a better way to say it myself. So look at what Keller writes. He says, Paul is saying that sin can only be cut off at the root if we expose ourselves constantly to the unimaginable love of Christ for us. That exposure stimulates a wave of gratitude and a feeling of indebtedness. Sin can only grow in the soil of self-pity and of a feeling of owedness. I'm not getting a fair shake. I'm not getting my needs met. I've had a hard life. God owes me. People owe me. I owe me. That's a hard attitude of owedness or entitlement. If you bathe yourself, in the remembrance of the grace of God, that will loosen, weaken, and kill sin at a motivational level. He goes on to say, we need to preach grace-centered mini-sermons to ourselves throughout the day, especially when we are tempted. See, this is, this is a massive shift away from our, our typical sort of idea of, okay, I got to buckle down. I got to, I gotta. and again, I, please don't mishear me. I'm not trying to say that you aren't a part of this. What I'm trying to say is what empowers you in this, what changes us at that motivational level that Keller talked about is what Christ has done for us. If we focus our energy on understanding the gospel and that that is true for each of us, our whole approach, our whole relationship to sin begins to change. It begins to to loosen its grip of of power over us. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, not only have you been given a a new obligation, you also have a, a new identity. Here again from verse 14. He says, for all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but instead you read the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. If you know um, this church and this family know that, that adoption is... is a big part of our church family story. There's a number of you who have adopted, and and we as a church love to be able to just welcome people into our church family. And many of you know Allie and Jonathan's story and the adoption of their son, and they're um, currently, I can say they're currently in the adoption process, again, which is exciting news, and we're praying for that. But I had the privilege at being a part of Jaden's um, finalization proceeding. And, and when Jaden's adoption was being finalized, I was able to serve as a witness to that adoption. I've got a picture up there. Apparently, I thought it was such a big event that I put on my nicest t-shirt. <laughs> and um, look at that smile on Jaden. And this event is important because this this moment, I was there when this judge pronounced that Jaden has all the legal rights of sonship. It's all been applied to him. In fact, there's another picture. Yeah, officially a gobel. Like he's saying everything that comes with being a part of the gobel family, this is now applied to you legally. It's yours. There is... Now, if we get talking about identity, and this is this is like my passion point, like I, I I could go on and on and on here, and there's so much good stuff that we could unpack together, and 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 we'll continue to think about and preach on and talk about. But I want to just I want us to feel the magnitude of being referred to as God's children. Of, of having a spirit of adoption. It's overwhelming. I want you to receive that this morning. I want you to hear that about yourself. If you are in Christ, right, that you have been adopted, given the, the, the rights, the privileges of, of being the children of God, receive that. You know, at times when Scripture talks about us being God's children, it, we use it sometimes in this phrase of like we're we're all God's children, right? We're all um, we use it as kind of like we're all part of humanity. We're all created by God, and therefore we're all image of uh, image bearers of God, and we've been given this worth and value and dignity that is to be respected and, and highlighted and. Paul uses that in in, uh, Acts chapter 17. He uses it when he talks about we're all God's offspring. He's talking about this universal sense of who we are as image bearers of, of, of the creator God. But here when he talks about this, this spirit of adoption, this idea of sonship, which again, like here that's applied to all of us because this was the means in which that, in that culture, in that society, rights were established and passed down. And he's saying those privileges, it's being applied to all of us who are in Christ. All who are led by the spirits, God's spirit, he says. And Paul is connecting our adoption, our understanding of our identity to the power over sin that he just described. so sin no longer gets to claim authority in your life because you are in Christ. you, you are a child of God. One of my one of my daughters when we were it was an event happening at, at one of the church one of the campuses and um, and there was like a raffle kind of thing. And so she wanted to put her name in for the raffle, and she, I went and saw she was little at the time, and she wrote her name kind of in chicken scratch. and then there was a line that said, email. And on the email line, she wrote, my daddy owns the church. <laughs> <laughs> Which I quickly went, and I was like, sorry. We had some conversations about But I want, I think she was trying to say, you know how to get a hold of me. (laughs) Um, Listen to me on this. This is what Paul's saying is true about you. When the world wants to claim authority on you, when when the flesh wants to say, you operate according to my rules, you get to say back to it, like, no, my dad created the world. He runs it, he sustains it. I'm his child. You don't get to claim authority over me. Like it, it means something to be a part of the family, right? And God is saying, you are a part of my family. And we need to operate that way. Paul, Paul contrasts this with what he calls the spirit of slavery. So this, this previously defined status of in the flesh, like we, where we lived without authority, He's saying that's not the case anymore because of our position in the family. So all of the, the security, right? We don't lose our status as sons of daughters. All the authority, the intimacy, you've received a spirit of adoption wherein we cry out Abba, Father, this relational close proximity term. He's saying this is how we get to approach God. All the assurance, all of it has been applied to us and here's the thing the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In other words, the Spirit is affirming in us, it's reminding of us when we listen, it's reminding us of what our identity is, of who we are. This is our identity. So, once again, Paul's, Paul's whole point is to say that this has implications, right? This has. You've been adopted. The rights and the privileges of the family of God have been given to you, including freedom from sin. This is who you are. This is who you are. So live accordingly. And then Paul says, we've been given a new inheritance. Look again, these last two verses. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul saying, you bear a family likeness. My oldest daughter was born... This was before like cell phone cameras and that sort of thing. So we had this little digital camera um, point and shoot thing. it was like a tiny little screen, much smaller than my cell phone screen. And so when Emma was born, I took a couple quick pictures of her and I wanted to run out to the family that was waiting in the lobby and to introduce them to Emma. And I come out with this little camera and this tiny little picture and this somewhat blurry image of a baby. And my mother-in-law looks at it, and she goes, she looks just like Sherry. And I was like, does she? Like, is, You can barely, you don't even have your glasses on. Like, how can you, you know? And then it's like we take Emma home, right? And the first time my grandma, Emma's great-grandma, is holding Emma. She's sitting at her dining room table holding this baby, and she goes, who thinks this baby looks like a moor? And she raises her own hand, like, There's a likeness in the family. And Paul's saying, you bear this resemblance. You bear a family resemblance, a new inheritance as he talks about it. But notice what he says here. The inheritance is to share in his suffering. But it's also to share in his glory. Paul's saying, because you are a part of the family, then you are also a part of the family business. And when we look at the life of Christ, as we did throughout the Gospel of Mark, when we see him announcing the arrival of his kingdom, when he is disrupting systems of brokenness and mistreatment and pain and sorrow and grief, by some he is welcomed and cheered, others rejected and persecuted him. And Paul's saying we get to be like him In in our adoption, we are also given this kingdom work. And in that work, if we're going to be about the things that he has placed us here to do, then we are also going to share in a suffering in in the brokenness that that surrounds us that we see play out every day, and today is no different. But he says it's not an empty suffering because it's an inheritance unto glory. He's saying your future, although it it will be marked with suffering as you remain in a broken world, but your future is secure in Christ. As Paul's going to talk more about this in the next section as we talk about groans to glory. You are an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. You're called to share in his work and you're promised to share in his glory. And so as I, as I wrap up, as I think about this, this experience that we have, like why am I not experiencing this victorious life that scripture describes? Why is there something wrong with me? Is there, I, want, I want us to, if we can believe what God says about us, if we can start to live like that is true, if you can hear that, that that you are under a new obligation, that you in Christ are his beloved adopted son and daughter, and that you are promised a new inheritance, if we begin to adapt that, apply that to our lives, then we're going to experience All sorts of victory over sin, over disillusionment, over discouragement, all kinds of different things. If we can believe what God says about us is true. That's my prayer for us today as the church. Would you pray with me? Father Jesus, we just want to, um, we want to receive that from you today. We want to receive this soaring description of who Paul says that we are in you. And Jesus, would you forgive me for the moments when I fail to apply the gospel to myself, when I, when I live under an inferior identity? Lord, would you give me the boldness to be able to, when sin wants to claim authority over me, would you give me the boldness to say, well, my dad, he owns it all. He created it all. You have no claim of authority over me. May we experience this, and you may the Holy Spirit continue to speak these truths into our hearts and minds, that we might live like they're true, because they are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.